that privilege of being the Lord's, called to Him, redeemed by Him, and able to worship Him. And that privilege, let's now enjoy the privilege of taking our copies of His Word. And we will turn together to our passage for this morning and for a week ahead, and that is found in Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 31. Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 31. So as we find our passage and our copy of God's Word, I want us to think about something as we prepare to come before God's Word. Part of our tradition, part of our liturgy, and in a little while after the sermon, we're going to spend a time of confession. We are going to confess who it is we believe in with the Apostles' Creed, and then we're going to confess in what we believe in through the use of our Westminster Shorter Catechism. And this morning, we're going to confess what we believe in through the Shorter Catechism with this question and answer. What makes the Word effective for salvation? The Spirit of God causes the reading, and especially the preaching of the Word, to convince and convert sinners and to build them up in holiness and comfort through faith to salvation. Now I want us to think through just a moment what we are prepared to confess. That the Spirit of the living God, that the third person of the Trinity is at work. And specifically at work through the reading and preaching of the Bible. And so, so what we're getting ready to do, reading from Acts 9, preaching of Acts 9, is the Spirit will use that to bring people to faith. Maybe even one of you this morning will be brought to faith because the Spirit of the living God is at work through the reading and preaching of the Word. And for those of us who are Christians, who are God's own, He will use this time through the Spirit to build us up in faith, holiness, and obedience. Now, I point this out because I, I want us to make sure we understand that what we're entering into is a holy and divine time. This isn't just something good ARPs do. This isn't just something that every Christian should be doing on Sunday morning uh, because it's part of the checklist of what good Christians do. We do this because God promises to be at work through this. So as we prepare to read this passage, and I hope you have your Bible open to that passage, as we preach through this passage, and I hope you have your ears open to the preaching, the Spirit of God is here. He is present, and He is at work through these means. Keep that in mind, because we're coming to the very time that God has purposely made effective for your salvation and for the growth in our faith, the growth to be more like Him. We will do that this morning, or he will do that this morning. More specifically, he will do that this morning through our passage in Acts 9. So let's pray then for the Lord's blessing our time together in his word. Lord, I pray that for whoever is sitting here this morning in the sanctuary or at home, that we understand that this is a holy and divine time because you, through your spirit, are here. And you promise to be at work through the reading and preaching of your word. To call sinners to faith and Christians to growth. Oh Lord, we pray for that blessing here at Bethel this morning. May the Spirit of God truly be present. And may he call us to faith. And may he call us to growth. 
and all this for your glory. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 9, 26-31. Let's stand together now for the reading of God's word. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. This past summer, I was asked to moderate a session of the ARP church because they were without a pastor, therefore they were without a moderator. It's a church in the Midlands. It's a pretty church on the outside. It sits on a corner lot. It has a lot of land. It has good facilities. It's a nice sanctuary. There's plenty of classroom space. It has a pretty decent fellowship hall. And where it sits in town is near a growing area. It already has established neighborhoods around it. But there have been new neighborhoods that have been built up right across the street from that church. As a matter of fact, Chick-fil-A just built a new restaurant less than a mile away from this church. And for those of us who are actively involved in the cult of Chick-fil-A, we know Chick-fil-A only builds up where there is business, where there are people, where it is growing. And that's where this church sits, just a mile away from this growing area in this town. So from the outside looking in, looking at church, looking at the facilities, looking at its geographical situation, you would say this is a church that has so much possibility to, to grow and to, to thrive and to have a good ministry to the community. Yet Sunday after Sunday, it averages 10 to, 10 to 15 people a week. They can't afford a full-time pastor, haven't had one in years. And they've just been seeming to, to flounder for, for, for almost generations now. They're not growing. They're not thriving. They're struggling to have a good ministry to the community that God has placed them in. This is a church I was called or asked to go and moderate the session. And within first, the first 15 minutes of that session meeting, which was my first session meeting, it turns out to be my last session meeting I'm moderating for this church, it became very clear as to why this church was having significant issues. Mainly because of the man who is preaching there every week. They can't afford a full-time guy, so this is a, an older, uh, part-time man uh, who comes in and preaches every Sunday. But during that session meeting, and I still to this day, I don't think he knows who I am. He doesn't know my name. But in the session meeting, we're discussing the possibility of them doing vacation Bible school. This man, called to preach at church every Sunday, literally gets in my face. And tells me that I, as a representative of the ARP, represented all that was wrong with the ARP, and I needed to shut my mouth. And it went downhill from there. 
Needless to say, that wasn't the best session meeting I've ever been a part of. It was the most harmonious session meeting I've ever been a part of. Hence why it was the last session meeting I had with that church. But as I was driving back home, I was actually making my way back here for vacation Bible school. It bothered me. And I kept on wondering, why? Where has this church, was it missing? Where have they gone off the tracks? How they ended up to, to being this sort of church where everything's growing around them, but they're dying, and they have a disease in the pulpits. They meet every Lord's Day for, sun, for Sunday school classes. And they, they have a worship service where psalms and, and hymns are sung. And this man stands in the pulpit and, and says something. I'm hoping it's from the Bible, it's biblical. What's wrong with them? How they got to a point to be floundering and to have people such as that involved in the ministry of the church? And I believe we find the answer to that in our passage. They have the Bible in the church. They're ARPs. They sing hymns and psalms. They're missing in the ministry of encouragement. What we find is that a spiritually, biblically, biblically healthy church will always have the faithful preaching and teaching of God's word. There will always be the faithful praying with and for each other. They will be involved in their community, but we also find that they will be a church that's committed to the ministry of encouragement. These spiritually, biblically healthy churches will be full of people who, who are serious about their faith, who are, who are faithful to Christ, who are, who are warm to others, and within 15 minutes of meeting them, doesn't get in their face and tell them they represent everything that's wrong with something. But they also encourage other Christians in their faith. If you want to find a strong church, you will find in there a ministry of encouragement such as we see in our passage this morning. Now, this ministry of encouragement is set in the context of Saul. Saul has left Damascus uh, because the Damascus Jews weren't encouraging him, were they? They were plotting to kill him. So he has to escape in the dead of night. They, 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 the, the, the Christians have to let him down uh, outside the city walls in a basket in the dead of night, and he makes his way to Jerusalem. But, but I want us to think about the Saul we are, we are talking about here in this passage. This is the Saul that was at one point persecuting and ravaging the church in Jerusalem. And he's doing a good job. The, the, church is, is, the Christians are, are, are scrambling, running away from Jerusalem. Having done a good job there, he, 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 he gets permission to leave Jerusalem to go to Damascus, to continue in that same work, to persecute Christians, to, to ravish the church. But while he's on that six-day journey from Jerusalem to Damascus, we think he was getting very close to Damascus, to Damascus. Something miraculous happens, doesn't it? The resurrected Jesus comes for Saul. Appears to Saul, calls him by name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus has come to apprehend Saul and his grace. Calls him to faith in Jesus and calls him to gospel ministry to Jews and Gentiles. Saul ends up in Damascus as a changed man. He's now a Christian. And some 
probably a short time there, he, he goes to Arabia for three years to prepare for his ministry, and he comes back to Damascus. And when he comes back to Damascus the second time is when he goes to the synagogues and begins to proclaim that Jesus is the Lord. And this is where all of Saul's troubles begin, and they will continue to the end of his life. So the Saul we, we find here in our passage is the Saul who is somewhere around three to four years into being a Christian. Three to four years of growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's, he's growing in biblical knowledge and application. He's growing in godly wisdom. There's the, the, the blossoming of the fruit of the Spirit in his life. If we look at Saul over his three to four years, we've seen he was faithful to worship. On the Lord's Day, he was going to worship. There's a prayer meeting, he was there. If there's a Bible study, he was involved. Saul is a serious Christian. He's serious about his faith. He's serious about his call to ministry. This is the Saul who is coming back into Jerusalem in our passage this morning. He goes from persecutor to Christian, from a hater of Jesus to a lover and follower of Jesus. This is the Saul who is going to walk into Jerusalem. Now, of course, these are the days before we had our smartphones and, and emails and, and all the instantaneous ways we have to be in touch with each other. But we can be sure that word of Saul had reached Jerusalem before he physically entered back into the city. So can you imagine the conversations that were being had about him? Can you imagine the, the conversation uh, amongst the Jews and amongst the Christians? As people gathered after worship or maybe they're meeting up for lunch or they saw each other on the street, what was being said about Saul in Jerusalem? Well, Luke tells us that the Jews weren't happy with him. He had left three to four years before as a persecuted church. He was their hero. He had ravaged the church in Jerusalem and now is making his way to Damascus to do the same there. When Saul left Jerusalem three to four years before, he left as a hero. Now he's coming back as a pariah. Because what the Jews in Jerusalem know is that he's coming back, claiming to be like the very ones that they hate and he persecuted. So for the Jewish, uh, the, the Jewish community in Jerusalem, Saul comes back with a bullseye on his front, on his back, and on his forehead. He comes back as a hated man, a wanted man, a man who is despised. He is now the enemy. He is now with the enemy. That's the conversations the Jerusalem Jews are having about Saul. But what about the Christians? What about them? They surely weren't plotting his death, were they? Well, by this point, they surely had heard the story of Saul on the road to Damascus. They, 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 they've heard about his, that testimony of the resurrected Jesus coming for him. They, they've heard of his ministry in Damascus and, and Arabia. Maybe they even heard some of the snippets of what he taught, what he preached, what he said. But they're still suspicious. Suspicious to the point of being afraid, as Luke tells them. And Luke tells us, I'm sorry. We can't really blame them for that, can we? This is the Saul who spearheaded the destruction of their church, who is in some way responsible for the murder of some of their friends, who, who, who tore about, who tore apart, maybe even their own families, but they knew of families that he, he tore apart. And if we're honest, no matter how much we believe in God's grace, all of us 
probably have a belief that, that that grace has a limit. And there are some people who are outside of God's salvation. That God's grace doesn't go as far as them. And I believe that's how the Christians here saw, thought of Saul. They believed in amazing grace. They were thankful for grace for them. But that Saul, he is outside the realm of God's grace. So when Saul comes back to Jerusalem, he's walking down the street, Christians cross the street so not to be near him. When they hear he's walking through the neighborhood, they, they lock their doors. When their children start to be bad, they tell them, you better get straight or Saul the boogeyman is going to come for you. Maybe they were even thinking that this is all one big elaborate hoax. That Saul's made a story so now he can get to the church and do as much damage as he can from the inside. So Saul comes to Jerusalem. There's a group who hates him to death. There's another group who's suspicious of him to alienation. So what's he to do? How's he deal with this? And especially with the Christian community, how's he deal with making relationships with the very same people he had persecuted and sought to destroy? Well, this is where we're introduced to Barnabas, a man prepared for this and led, by the, led to this by God. Now, we've already been introduced to Barnabas back in Acts chapter 4, where we're told, thus Joseph who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we have a man whose God-given name is Joseph. On the birth certificate it says, Joseph, a Levite, native of Cyprus. But the apostles, when they got to know him, gave him a nickname. The nickname of Barnabas. That means son of encouragement. And nicknames mean something, don't they? There's a reason for nicknames. There's a, there's a reason that Barnabas has been named, or that Joseph has been named Barnabas. Because think about the context we think about in Acts 4. Right after this, we are, we are told the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, Ananias and Sapphira sold a, sold a piece of land. They lied to the, to the apostles about how much they got for it. So lied to them about how much they were given to the church. But we're first told about Joseph, Barnabas, who sold the land for whatever the price and brought it to the apostles. He was an encouragement to the apostles. He was an encouragement to the church in his truthfulness, in his faithfulness, and his generosity. That same Barnabas now is, comes back into the story with Saul, and Saul comes back to Jerusalem, a hated man, and, 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 and one that folks are very suspicious of. Now there's something interesting that takes place here at the nickname of Barnabas. The word used here comes from the same word that Jesus uses in the upper room with the Holy Spirit. As Jesus is talking to the apostles about the upper, in the upper room about the Holy Spirit, he uses this word to describe the Holy Spirit. That word is translated comforter. So we read through the upper room discourse, and you read about the Holy Spirit being a comforter, it's from that same word that the apostles, when they got to know Joseph, gave him the name Son of Encouragement. Now the actual word means to strengthen. In the Bible, we find the Holy Spirit has a ministry of strengthening faith through the witness of Christ, the testifying of Christ, the comfort of Christ. 
And we find that's part what the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit does. He does for you and for you and me. He always points God's people to Christ. He's always reminding us of the teaching of Christ. He is nudging us and pushing us towards Christ. He is comforting us in Christ and in His grace. That's a part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that comforting, strengthening of God's people. And so as the apostles got to know Barnabas, they said, man, this is what Barnabas is good at. This is what Barnabas does. Or this is what Joseph does. This is what he's good with. Let's call him Barnabas. He's a faithful Christian. He's, he's winsome in faith. He's encouraging others. He's always pointing them to Jesus. That no matter the situation, you know that if you're going to talk to Barnabas, he was going to point you to Jesus. And he's going to point you to Jesus in such a way so that you're, you would be further strengthened in faith because you're more comforted in Christ. That's who Barnabas is. That's what he does. And that seems to be exactly what Saul needed at this time. He's back in Jerusalem. The Jews hate him to death. The Christians are suspicious of him to the point of alienation. He's been through a lot in the past two years. People try to kill him. And he's all alone. And the Lord sends to him Barnabas. Barnabas comes and finds Saul. They, they talk. They get to know each other. Saul tells Barnabas about how he became a Christian. Of, of, of all these things that have been taking place in, in Damascus and Arabia. And Barnabas says, why don't, you, why don't you join me at church this Sunday? Let me introduce you to other Christians. Sits with them Worships with them, prays with them, prays for them, checks in on Saul. And all the time, Barnabas is telling Saul, Brother, keep looking to Christ, for he is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brother, take comfort in Christ in that way. It was in and through this ministry and encouragement that Barnabas then takes Saul and introduces him to some of the apostles. We're told later in Galatians 1.18, he was actually introduced to Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. Now, can you imagine those conversations? Can you imagine Saul sitting across from Peter? I mean, surely he said, just tell me everything, Peter. I want to know it from beginning to end. Don't leave out anything just tell me everything. What was it like to be a fisher of men? What was it like to see the transfiguration? What was it like to be with Jesus? Imagine what the conversation was like with, with, with James, the brother of Jesus. Was he, James, to be honest, was he a mama's boy? I'm sure he always got picked first for games. What, what, what was it like having Jesus as your brother? We don't know fully what was talked about, but Saul does tell us a part of our conversation. We find in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and they appeared to Cephas. And who's Cephas? 
is Peter. He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. They appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, so though some fall asleep. They appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, someone untimely born, he appeared also to me. There's only two people named in that, isn't there? It's the people he met with through Barnabas. As he met with Peter, as he met with James, they encouraged him. They strengthened him in the gospel, in the gospel ministry. All because Barnabas, son of encouragement, went to Saul and befriended him. What does Saul do? He does what he always does. He goes to the Jews. He goes and proclaims to them that Jesus is the Lord. It tells us here, he goes to the Greek-speaking Jews known as the Hellenists, those who were involved with the death of Stephen. He goes with them to share with them the gospel, to proclaim Jesus is the Lord. This leads to disputes. This leads to another death threat. It leads to now uh, Saul having to leave another city. He has to leave Jerusalem for, uh, for his own life, for the safety of his own life. But I want you to notice what this ministry encouragement led to. Look with me at verse 31. So the church, tying it in. Here's everything that's happened with Saul. So, the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Barnabas, being a faithful man of God, an encouraging man of God, goes to Saul to encourage him. He goes to Saul to encourage him as he's in Jerusalem. From that, some part of that leads to a fruitful time in the church. Barnabas goes to Saul. Barnabas takes Saul to Peter and James. Saul goes and preaches the gospel and leads to a time of peace and growth in the church in the region. Luke says that they're being encouraged, they're being strengthened in their walk and faith in the Lord, and the church grows. How's the church grow? Heart, because Barnabas encouraged Saul and Peter and James encouraged Saul. True gospel ministry will always include the preaching and teaching of God's word. It will always include praying with and for each other. It will always include the faithful administering and taking of sacraments. It will always include the ministry or the fellowship of the saints and I believe it will always include the ministry of encouragement. Winsome, warm, and gracious strengthening of the faith in Jesus Christ. In our Reformed world, we love our theology. We love our doctrine as well as we should. It's important. But I've also found in our Reformed world, we can easily get blinders on and we become laser focused on just being right and precise Good theology is important. That's what we've been talking about on Wednesday evenings. Good theology leads to good theologians. Bad theology leads to, to bad theologians. But let me ask you this. What good is it if we have all the proper theology, but we can't be encouraging with it? What if all of our, our, our theology was just a baseball bat to beat up other people? 
our, our, our pedestal to put ourselves upon because we know such good theology. We've got it all down pat. The nature of the gospel itself is encouragement and strengthening of faith. Think about what Jesus offers to us in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Are there any more comforting words than those in Scripture? That God incarnate, the second person of the triumph Godhead, the one to whom and through whom and for whom all things were created, says to you, come to me. You are labor, you labor, you heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Those are such encouraging and comforting words. And that's part of gospel. Yet sadly, that's the part of gospel some churches are missing. They got their doctrine down. They got their liturgy of worship down. They look nice on Sundays. But you would never go to them for encouragement. And yet the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, in the midst of Jews who hated them, the church was being built up. Why? In part through the ministry of encouragement. That is how the church was in part being built up. So as we look at ourselves here at Bethel, thankful to see how the Lord has been building up us up for the past 200 years, we need to take time to look at our ministry of encouragement. I like to think as your pastor, we've got good theology. We've got a good liturgy. We look good on Sundays. What about our ministry of encouragement? And that isn't a specialized ministry. It isn't just for these people over here, not just the choir, but this you know, general group of invisible people right down here. It's not just a specialized ministry. It's the ministry of all Christians. A faithful Christian who is once in faith will always be encouraging because they'll always be pointing people to Jesus. That no matter the situation, you will point others to Christ because you want nothing more than see them either further strengthened in faith or even called to faith. Look, we, we don't want to be a church just where our theology is right. We'll be a church where because of our good theology, we are good Christians. We want to be a church where because of our good theology, we are encouraging others. That Bethel be a congregation full of Barnabas to each other and to the world around us. Every one of us in here needs encouragement. Are you willing to encourage one another? The world around us needs encouragement. Are you willing to be an encouragement to the world around us? By God's grace, may we be who we were created and redeemed to be. And part of that is to be a Barnabas. Christ has encouraged you. Christ has sent others to encourage you. May we be a Barnabas to each other and to people in our lives.
pray with me.